Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. As I listen to those words and try to wrap my own mind around the astonishing picture that John in this vision is attempting to convey, uh, it kind of transports me back to when I was a child growing up. And my parents uh, used to lead a church and would often have meetings in our family home. And I'd find pretty much any excuse I could as a young child to get out of bed, creep downstairs and try and get involved with whatever was going on in the house. I did that for two main reasons. Uh, The first was to see if there was any food left over. Uh, And the second reason was I just wanted to see if I knew anybody in the room. I was a bit nosy, really. Now, if I managed to get past my parents, kind of barring the door, and managed to sneak my way into the room, I would suddenly find myself in a setting where I didn't really understand what was going on. I didn't necessarily know why everyone was there or what it was they were talking about. I didn't have the maturity to get it all. But even as a small child... I could kind of pick up the sense in the room, what the vibe was. Now, I don't know if you ever did anything remotely like that, or maybe you have children of your own who are a little similar to that, but that is perhaps a bit how we feel when we read or listen to a passage like this one in Revelation 4 and 5. It's like, all of a sudden... We are exposed to this picture that is like a child sneaking into the adult world. And we don't necessarily understand everything that's going on or what all of the words mean, just like, in all honesty, all of the theologians and Bible commentators, they don't understand it and agree on it all either. But what we can get is a sense or a feel of what's important here. John, who was a close, close friend of Jesus, sees Jesus, his friend, in a completely different way here. So it's happening to him too. He's seeing stuff that he has no previous framework for either. It all starts with him seeing an open door and hearing a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And immediately, by the Spirit, he sees this unfolding vision of creatures and thrones and a sea of glass and lightning and thunder and four living creatures. And he's trying as hard as he can to describe what is almost indescribable. It's almost impossible to capture this scene, this vision, with human words. I don't know if... You've ever taken a photo of what you think at the time is a stunning, stunning scene. Invariably, it doesn't quite do it justice, if you know what I mean. Well, that's kind of what is happening here in this passage. John is scrabbling desperately for words to describe this scene that he has no other earthly framework for. But despite all of that, it is clear that what he sees shakes him to the very core. 
Isaiah 6 is a very similar passage to Revelation 4. Isaiah, in that passage, sees a vision of God in thrones, and I think it's fair to say he is never the same again. In 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul describes how seeing the unveiled glory of the Lord results in us being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. You know, I think often we tend to want to follow just three simple steps to change, don't we? We, we? we like a talk that gives a very clear message with bullet points. It's all neatly spelled out. We go home knowing precisely what we're supposed to do. But sometimes what we need most is to simply stop and wait and behold and allow God to reveal to us what we cannot see and grasp with our own eyes and our own mind without his help. And so, with your permission, I'm kind of going to do it anyway, but with your permission, that's what we're going to try and attempt to do this morning. Uh, I want us really to stop everything else as best we can to, just for a moment, kind of forget about all the other concerns pressing in on us and simply take this time to look and try and behold something of the glory of God. And my prayer is that as we do this, it deeply impacts us, that it shapes the kind of people we are that what we behold affects who we become. And so, as we approach this passage together, I want to invite the Spirit of God who gave this vision in the first place, I want to invite the Spirit of God to come and touch our eyes, as it were, to touch our hearts, to touch our minds, to enable us, maybe in a fresh way, to see and understand and experience something of the glory of Jesus that will cause each one of us to never be the same again. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the songs we've sung already this morning. Thank you for the sound of your voice that's come through the reading of Scripture and the sharing of prophetic insight we've heard already today. Thank you for this magnificent passage that Verena read for us that shows you perhaps in a different light. Now Jesus, would you please send your spirit to us to help us see you more clearly. I pray for those in the room who are struggling to see through the fog, who don't even know if you're there. Jesus, in your kindness, in your mercy, would you come close? For those who maybe over the years have created an image of you that is a million miles from what you're really like, would you cut through our preconceived ideas? Give us a dose of reality today, I pray. Jesus, for those with hardened hearts, those with arms folded, not really interested, would you surprise them 
the tenderness with which you start softening their hearts. Jesus, would you help me to convey through my words a greater picture and image of you. And Jesus, as we behold you together, I pray we'll be changed. Amen. So what's happening here is John's invited to come up and gaze through an open door into heaven itself. He's been given this amazing glimpse of ultimate reality. As John peers into the heart of ultimate reality, what does he see? Two main things. First of all, he sees a throne. Verse 2, I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Amidst everything else that John saw, and he saw quite a lot, what stood out most at the center of everything was a throne. And not just a throne, but an occupied throne. In the heart of ultimate reality, we see what is most important, what really matters. We see what the suffering Christians back in John's day most needed to see. We see what the struggling believers of every age have needed to see. We see what we in our situations today most desperately need to see. God on the throne of the universe. Just to give you a little bit of background, a bit of context here. Uh, As John received this revelation and wrote down what he saw, the emperor Domitian sat on the Roman throne demanding to be addressed by everyone, all his subjects, as Lord and God. Which meant that those who persisted in calling Jesus Lord and God were being severely persecuted and even put to death. And so the Roman throne was a very real source of fear and anxiety for John's readers. But John was invited to see who is truly on the throne of the universe. Someone to be both feared and worshipped more than any human ruler before or since. John saw someone on the throne whose reign admittedly brings terror for all who reject his offer of grace, but mercy for all who will receive it. Listen, to all who are willing to come under his authority, his isn't a throne to hide from. As we've heard already today, it is a throne to draw near to. And if this incredible vision that John got to glimpse is anything to go by, it's pretty clear that the one seated on his throne is not worshipped reluctantly. Now, he is worshipped enthusiastically and authentically because he is worthy. Why is he worthy? Well, just to work through what we've heard already, we're told his appearance is like the brightest, most brilliant jewels. God sits on the throne of the universe, radiating from his being the splendor of his holiness, the beauty of his character, the magnificence of his mercy, the brilliance of his plans and his purposes, the majesty of his sovereign reign. Around the throne, we're told, is a rainbow. The rainbow speaks of his complete 
unending faithfulness and commitment to his people. From the throne come flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder that speak of the terrifying, terrifying power of his judgment for his enemies. John then moves. From his focus on the centerpiece of heaven, the throne, to the circles that surround the throne. We're told there are the 24 elders, who in all probability represent a whole of redeemed humanity from both the old and the new covenant communities of faith. And we're shown that they're dressed in the righteousness of Christ, which is vitally, vitally important. Because there is no way that they, or us for that matter, could ever enter the presence of God with the filthy rags of their own righteousness. But those who are cleansed by the blood of Jesus are given this robe of righteousness by Jesus. It's like we are dressed by him for him. And so, you might not feel particularly worthy today, and that's a theme that's come out as we've worshipped and as we've sung. You, you might not feel worthy. You may feel excluded. You, you might think that you are disqualified, but what qualifies you is not your performance, your works, your life up until now. What qualifies you is the finished work of Christ. And he offers you today his robes of righteousness. And dressed in those, you are free to approach his throne with boldness and confidence. As well as the 24 elders, there are also these pretty bizarre four living creatures with the appearance, if you remember, of a lion, an ox, an eagle, and a man, each one with six wings covered in eyes. It's like a picture of the best of creation, the most fearsome, the swiftest, the strongest, and the wisest are all worshipping together, whether humans or wild animals or domesticated animals or birds of the air, all are caught up in worship around the throne. And having seen the glory of God, they cannot stop talking about it, honouring him, praising him, exalting him, glorifying him without interruption and without end. There's no grumbling, no complaining, no moaning, no gossiping, no criticising, no arguing, just unending, uncompromising worship of the living God on the throne of the universe who is eternally worthy. Let it sink in. At the heart of ultimate reality, there are people like you and me who have gone before us. They are no longer distracted by anything in the created world. They're no longer concerned primarily with themselves. And they no longer wonder if following God will be worth what it might cost them. They can see it clearly. He is worthy. Worthy to receive all the glory and honour and power as the centre and source of everything good and beautiful. And so, surrounding the throne is this perpetual party, this unceasing celebration, 
the atmosphere of heaven is continuous, joyful, extravagant worship. That is what is happening around the throne in heaven at this very moment. And get this, that is what we are called into here on earth right now. One day, we'll see the one on the throne in full for ourselves. But if we've seen even a glimpse of the glory and goodness of God, even now, we will worship. Listen, what John saw is an invitation for us today to allow something of the worth and wonder of God to sink in so that we, even today, respond with a wholehearted reorientation of our whole lives. All the things that used to be central and valuable and significant and important are swallowed up and fade into insignificance when we see what God alone is worth. Seeing God upon the throne truly ruins us for all else but living for him. Giving him the glory and the honour that he and he alone is worthy to receive. First of all, we see a throne. Now moving on. As John gazed on the one seated on the throne, his attention zoomed in on something in his hand. A scroll. That's the second thing I want to focus on in the time that remains. A scroll. Chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? Now, what's the scroll? And why does the scroll matter? And for that matter, why does someone need to be found to open the scroll? Why can't God just do it himself? Well, first of all, we need to understand that the scroll reveals God's plan for all history and all humanity. If you like, it tells the story of abundant, undeserved grace for repentant sinners and at the same time unbearable righteously inflicted, justly deserved judgment on unrepentant sinners. Now here's the point. For God the Father to open on his own the scroll that pours out pardon for sin would be akin to just sweeping sin under the rug and ignoring it, pretending it wasn't there. And if he were to open on his own with no mediator the scroll that pours out wrath, no one could escape his just judgment. What's needed is for someone to step into this dramatic heavenly scene and demonstrate the justice of God against evil as well as the sacrifice of God to accomplish salvation. And so, in this heavenly drama, the search is on for someone who is worthy to open the scroll. Someone who is pure and powerful and perfect. Someone who can mediate between a holy God and sinful people. And so, the voice of a mighty angel calls out into the whole cosmos. 
who is worthy. And the response in heaven and on earth is a resounding silence. Verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. At which point, John is overwhelmed by the desperateness of the situation. Verse 4, then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. He's weeping because of the failure of the entire human race to be all that God originally intended for it to be. Perhaps he's also weeping with personal shame, seeing his own failure. But there's far more than that going on here. I'm guessing he wept because if no one was found worthy to open the scroll, then there would be no end to the suffering of this world. There would be no confidence in good ever triumphing over evil. There would be no assurance that justice will finally be done. There would be no ultimate victory for God's people. No experience of promised blessings. No new heaven, no new earth. No end to sin, suffering, death. No hope for humanity. Let's face it, that's enough to cause all of us to weep, isn't it? But then John heard something that put an end to his weeping. And if we get it, we'll put an end to ours too. Verse 5. One of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Finally, someone was found who is worthy. It's like the point in a film where everything seems lost, but eventually the hero appears at the very last second to save the day. And so John looked up, expecting to see this conquering lion, but instead, not for the only time in the book of Revelation, sees something unexpected. Instead of a lion, he sees a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but was now standing before the throne. It's not a trick question. Um, Any ideas who this lamb might be? Jesus is the correct answer. John is seeing in this moment the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus in glorified human flesh. And he resembles a lamb. That's to say, to remember, this is a vision and John is using picture language. And the image of a lamb is the best way to try and depict this vision of Jesus that he's seeing in this moment. Again, I just want us to pause and allow this to sink in. In the heart of ultimate reality, which is what we're getting a glimpse into, John saw a saviour who still bears the marks of suffering. A lamb who was slaughtered, yet conquered death. This isn't a lamb slumped in defeat. No, this is a powerful, powerful lamb. An incredibly wise lamb 
the only creature in the whole universe worthy to unfurl the scroll that contains God's sovereign plans for judgment and salvation. And when the scroll is opened, the victory he achieved in his death and resurrection will have its full effect in establishing God's rule over the whole world. All the prayers of God's people through all of time, prayers for him to judge those who rebel against him, prayers for deliverance from the evil of this world, prayers for his kingdom to finally come, all these prayers are answered in Christ as he opens the scroll. Now again, a question for you. What response do you think this merits? Any ideas? It's not a trick question. What response? Worship, I hear being whispered. Worship is correct. It is the right response. The only fitting response, well done, you you got it right, is worship, verse 9. And so they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you are slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, of the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They sang, blessing and honour and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. Every creature, every person gives God the Father and Jesus the Lamb the praise and glory that they uniquely deserve. All of creation is unable in this moment to hold back from giving God the Father and Jesus the Lamb unending applause. So when you see a performance... You see something absolutely amazing and the natural reaction in that moment is you want to stand and applaud, wave your arms and cheer. That's what's being captured in this passage as everything in all creation joins in the roar of praise. Now here's the question, not for you to answer out loud this time, for you to consider. Does this heavenly scene awaken something deep inside you? Does this magnificent saviour at the centre of everything create in you this longing to join in the song of praise to him? Is your heart moved by the worthiness of Jesus? Or if you're honest... Is all of this making you yawn and kind of look at your watch and wish I'd get on with it so you can go and get on with your day? If you remember from last week, there's the promise of blessing for those who hear and keep 
the message of this book. And so, as I start to wrap up, I just want to consider for a moment what it might mean for us to hear and keep Revelation 4 and 5 so we might experience something of the blessing that is intended for us to know. So just a few suggestions to get you started. First of all, what might this require? Well, I think it requires passion. Surely, at the heart of what it means to hear and keep what we're shown in these chapters has got to be an inability to resist the urge to join in. If right now there is no tug in our hearts, no longing to be part of this glorious celebration around the throne, maybe we need to ask ourselves some sober questions. Perhaps we need to ask, what is it in my life that is getting the passion that belongs to Jesus? What is currently on the throne of my life? And is it worthy? Is it a big enough thing to devote my whole life to? Is it satisfying me? Is it going to last? Does it truly give me hope when everything around me is being shaken? Perhaps we need to pray and ask God to work in our lives to awaken that kind of passion for him and his presence. It requires passion. Secondly, it demands our praise. I think to hear and keep this message means there has got to be some connection between the way we worship and the way the Lamb is worshipped in heaven. You know, it's very easy, isn't it, to, to come to a meeting like this and just kind of go through the motions, kind of singing the songs, but without ever really offering the wholehearted worship that we're being shown here. Perhaps we've grown used over time to being casual, half-hearted, passive, disengaged, more spectators than worshippers. And maybe, just maybe, that is because Jesus barely registers in our lives the rest of the week. And it's kind of hard just switching on for half an hour or so on a Sunday. Listen, this is about so much more than how we worship when we gather on a Sunday. This is about living all of life for the praise of his glory. Which means, thirdly and finally, this has got to impact our priorities. Really to hear and keep this message means allowing the picture we've just seen to capture our imagination, to shape what we consider to be most beautiful and worth living for, sacrificing for, celebrating, putting first in our thoughts, our dreams, our ambitions. These chapters in Revelation, they lift our eyes from the attractions of the world and should make us want to live lives that revolve around the most glorious being in the entire universe. Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our undivided love. He's worthy of whatever may be required to live for him through all the challenges, the disappointments, the pain, the successes, the triumphs of day-to-day -day life. And if he is not that for you right now, if you're being honest, he's not that big a priority in your life, 
then you know better than I do that me telling you to put him first won't actually make much difference. I'd humbly suggest what you need is what John is seeing in these chapters. You personally need to see Jesus afresh for yourself today. It's as you behold him that you're changed. And so perhaps the best starting place is to simply open your eyes. In opening your eyes, would you look for him? Looking for him, maybe the best place to start is to read his words. Start in the Gospels, in the New Testament. Read about Jesus. Ask him to show himself to you. Put yourself in places where you can see him. That the Alpha Course that Kara was mentioning earlier, that's a great place to put yourself to enable you to see Jesus a little more clearly. These meetings on Sundays are a great place to come and put yourself in a place where you can see Jesus a little bit more. And as we worship, as we're going to return to in a few moments' time, as we worship, don't just go through the motions. Would you open yourself to experience, to behold more of the beauty of Jesus? I think that is why John received this vision And it's not just for him, it's for all of us to see, behold Jesus and be changed as a result.